Good morning and welcome to Connections. I'm your host this morning, Liz Lane. Today we continue our commemoration of the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the historic flood of 2013, focusing more today on the logistics of recovery and the unique aspects of the Front Range communities hit by the flood, which contributed to rescue and recovery efforts. We'll also talk about lessons learned and the critical planning process necessary to take to take the critical planning process necessary to prepare for the next natural disaster that may hit. My guests this morning are Gary Sampson, Boulder County Commissioner, District 1, and the Boulder County Flood Recovery Manager. Stephanie Walton is the manager of the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group. And Tom Hoganboom and his wife Marge Hoganboom um, are here. They are rapid response disaster cleanup volunteers with World Renew Disaster Response Services, which is headquartered out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And welcome to all of you. Nice to see you today. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so it's it's uh, been a difficult week for many people in the community. The Boulder, um, the future side of the Boulder Museum of History had um, an entire day and a huge amount of uh, space uh, devoted to the flood, memorabilia, um, artifacts, debris, um, um, notes, books, so many things. And then a, a whole um, quite scientific uh, geological aspect to it, planning, looking at the earth, looking at the configuration of our community. Community. And then that evening, of course, uh, having first responders in the community come in to share their stories. So, um, and of course, the weather this week with kind of cold rain, um, a lot of memories. And, and we are going to get into to some of the actual um, predictable phases, just like there are phases of grief um, and loss. There are, are phases of an experience like this in recovery. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Gary, I want to start with you. You were uh, you were the manager of the recovery after the Four Mile fire incident. And um, um, I just want to ask you to sort of reflect on, on the differences. You, you went from one disaster, really, you were literally wrapping up some of your work on the Four Mile Fire, and uh, the flood hit then uh, just a couple years later. So talk about that, and talk about the um, the continuum that, that occurred as far as the resources in the community, uh, what needed to be fired up, what didn't need to be fired up, and, um, and really, what is what was the beginning of, of this response, this wide response at all levels to the floods of 2013? Well, thanks, Liz, for having me. I just, I just want to clarify, I'm not one of the county commissioners. I am only wearing one hat, and that's the okay. flood recovery manager. Excuse me for that. That's all right. Uh, so, yeah, the fire and the floods uh, were significantly different in terms of my experience. Uh, first of all, we didn't have a recovery function at the county when the fire uh, hit us. So that took uh, uh, some time to uh, put into place. Uh, I think the, the the major difference I'm seeing is with a fire, uh, you know whether or not your home survived or not. It's very black and white. It's either there or it's not. And in some ways, uh, it makes it easier because for not only the government, but only also for the residents, because you know your your options are limited. What I've noticed in the flood is that there's a state of limbo that people are in right now, uh, whether or not they're waiting for the buyout program to kick in. There's over 50 residents of Boulder County that have applied for that program or they're waiting for the permanent road or creek to be realigned or built so they can uh, better be informed about where their permanent access will be. So there's, there's, there's hundreds of hundreds of people out there that are still not back in their homes or any kind of new normal. And you know, one of the challenges we see is people can see their homes on the other side of the bank of the creek, but they can't get there yet because of various uh, regulations, 
the road again is not reconstructed back in its permanent place. So uh, this time around, we we started the recovery uh, while the flood was still occurring. I got a call from the commissioners uh, that weekend saying we need you we need you to come back down here and uh, find a way down. That was the one big challenge because I live in the mountains. Wow! Uh, and and start the recovery process from day one. And we did. And we, you know, it was really fortunate. We did learn a lot from the Four Mile Canyon fire, and we just hit the ground running. So when you got that call, had you? been thinking about how this rain these days of rain might morph into something bigger and and again a lot of what we're going to get to today in terms of the future is imagining the unimaginable that that's really uh, a critical aspect of this is that to try to really think about the things that you couldn't possibly imagine happening because that really was a component of the flood yeah to be real honest with you i had a trip planned out of town i this was not in our consciousness. We were actually somewhat celebrating that we had made it through the monsoonal, you know, high-intensity rain season in the summer, which we, was a real concern after the Four Mile Canyon fire was the post-fire flooding, which we did experience um, in prior years. So we were feeling like, good, wow, we kind of made it. We were, we were in the clear. And so this, I, this, this caught me by surprise. This was really... Uh, yeah, incomprehensible that it could happen on this scale. We were prepared for, you know, one or two canyons being flooded and being uh, uh, isolated, but not the whole county. So when you got that call, and, and what do you think was the trigger point to, you know, to go from sort of, uh, we have a lot of rain here, we might have to put some plants in place to, this is a full-on front-range disaster. Uh, what really was that that tipping point? Was it the fourth day of rain? Was it, uh, you know, a breach of, of some creeks? Was it a road? What, you know, what really was it? Well, the Office of Emergency Management has really got a, a lot of great systems in place and connections to other agencies for predicting uh, weather and understanding threats. And it, it, it was pretty clear early on for them that this was this was a unique weather pattern that was setting up. And so they, they already were alerting fire districts uh, about potential flooding. Uh, again, maybe not for the whole county, but certainly that they were, you know, signs that there would be, you know, some serious issues in certain canyons, and so uh, they were mobilizing, getting all of us kind of in awareness mode right from the from the early stages of the the rain. Uh, just talking again about con- contrasting the fire to the flood. Um, can you explain? Uh, what the um, events were, the differences, because I'm about to talk to Stephanie Walton here, who's also in studio, um, who's the manager of the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group. This is an organization. It's got, I think, upwards of 40 or 50 people working for it, including case managers. So this is a, um, a semi-permanent organization devoted to this long-term recovery. Was there a similar thing with Four Mile, the Four Mile Canyon fire? And, and what was different to sort of come to this realization that we need um, a many a multi-year, um, many-tiered uh, ongoing responses that we're not going to be done with this in a month or two? So the major difference was just the scope and the size of the event uh, and its location. So the fire was in unincorporated Boulder County. Uh, it was 165 homes that were, were destroyed. It was not a presidential declared disaster, so we did not have any FEMA support. Right. So it was really contained within the county and the county, and certainly a lot of nonprofits. We did have some, the Community Foundation, Foothills United Way, involved in some of the, the fundraising 
private fundraising that helped a lot with individual support. But it was a really a smaller uh, contained event, so that's therefore the county took the lead and really was the the lead agency in, in this recovery. Whereas the other this other event involved all of us and involved all the a lot of different entities, a lot of different towns and cities. So we saw that it needed to be a regional approach to recovery, and that's why the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group was formed. Great segue to introduce Stephanie Walton. She's the manager of the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group. Uh, Stephanie, welcome. Thanks so much for coming in today. Uh, talk about the establishment of your group, what your mission is, and um, you know what your work has been about to this date, and is there anything unique about this particular week, this one-year anniversary? Sure. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. Um, the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group started in the end of November and got more into full gear in February. Um, it's a group of nonprofits, profit, public, private entities and agencies, um, including faith-based organizations that come together to support individuals and families that still have unmet needs and need assistance recovering from the flood. Our mission really is to get people safe, sanitary, and secure, and help them on their path to recovery to help define what their new normal is going to look like. And for some, that happens quickly. For others, um, it's going to take a while. Wow, safe, sanitary, and secure, which is just, uh, it sounds really simple, but how tough is that to, to get to for, for so many of these families? It is the basics. Yeah. Um, and for, I think, one, one other thing I'd add to what Gary was sharing about the differences is the number of people that had insurance or not. Um, if you didn't have flood insurance, much of the damage that was caused by water was not covered by homeowners insurance. And so that's a big difference, um, you know, versus a flood, people generally will have insurance and their homeowners coverage would, you know, cover their possessions. Um, I think one thing that is making it so difficult for, um, for people recovering from the flood are the number of people that continue to be displaced, and the financial hardship that those that are very vulnerable um, are still seeing. For example, if they're displaced and are having to rent a place, they're also still paying mortgage. And they may be having to wait longer because they have an access issue um, to get across the river that they're still determining where the river will be or the creek, um, and again, the highways um, as well. So that makes it a long term. So were there any efforts or is part of your uh, group's service to com communicate with banks? Um, not that I feel like banks are so receptive to uh, concerns about heart current hardship or, or some unforeseen uh, life event. But but what what mechanism is available, if any, to I mean, nobody can pay rent and a mortgage. That's just a tall you know, it's a, a tall financial order, especially coming on the heels of, you know, maybe maybe many of these people who suffered loss from the flood had barely recovered from the economic uh, catastrophe of 2008. And so many people trying to manage that a couple of jobs here, part time jobs, temp work. So uh, so what is that part of, of the work that you guys have done is to communicate with creditors, to communicate with banks, to try to do some sort of um, hardship package or deferral while these people um, try to restore store order in their lives. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just one thing um, yeah. that we're doing. Um, you know, trying to help people with any kind of rental assistance or rehabilitation or construction needs that they have. We also have, a um, you know, any kind of emotional support that's necessary out there. A lot of people, especially at this point in the anniversary, um, you know, are needing that extra emotional support. So that's another service that we've been able to offer people. Um, the funding that we help people with and the assistance that we 
try to put together comes from a lot of different places. Um, there are nonprofit organizations, um, American Red Cross, um, Salvation Army, a lot of faith-based organizations. Um, we're also um, a huge partner with the municipalities and Boulder County um, to help with those kinds of resources when it comes to any kind of down payment assistance for homes or rental assistance. Um, yeah, so it comes from a lot of different places. And it and each case is really unique. Each family's situation is unique. Their own story is unique. Um, we also find that um, the cases that we're still working with and the assistance that we're helping with people, um, many times there is, you know, um, there are medical issues that they're they're also dealing with on top of just being displaced or, you know, having their home and possessions damaged or lost. So that kind of adds to the complexity um, of their situation. What did it take to put together um, a group like this? How many, you noted it was public, private, faith-based, governmental, municipal. Uh, what did it, where, what was the, the hub of organization to bring all these groups together to determine uh, what needs each group might be able to contribute to? Because it, it's, uh, on the one hand, it, it's such a shame that it was necessary to put this group together for this event, but it does occur to me that this is a model for assistance in the community going forward because with or without an event like the flood or a fire, there are a lot of unmet needs in in Boulder County and other communities along the Front Range. So how did you put this group together? Right. So it's really our community rebuilding our community. Um, However, we're not starting from scratch. This isn't the first disaster that's happened in the country. And so what we're able to do is take the best practices of a long-term flood recovery group from other areas. So our model is based on uh, National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, um, the National VOAD organization, which there's a color Colorado chapter um, in several counties that are starting to get chapters going as a, as an outcome of, of this disaster. Um, but they have a, a series of best practices. And so what you start with is um, any kind of stakeholders in the community, nonprofit leaders, um, community activists um, that all came together for a meeting, I think the end of October. Um, there were, I think, 200 or 250 people at that organization. And so there were several committees were formed as a result of that. Um, and then um, and then out of that, it becomes um, a, a staff of basically case managers that work with organizations and individuals. So the committees, in, you know, include everything from um, from unmet needs and construction and housing. Um, and and many people in in the county are all part of that. And it's amazing to me how how uh, how short the distances have become between all of the communities. I think this has been. Um, like geographic distance? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the people that I've met all over the county that I didn't know before, you know, getting into this work, um, it's been amazing. And the resiliency that's out there in the community is really heartening. That was a wonderful theme on Wednesday was uh, resiliency, this community's resiliency, and the unique um, aspects of, of living here on the Front Range and the people that come here to live uh, and how all that contributed to to the community spirit and effort that and the volunteerism and the neighbor then reaching out to neighbors. Um, Meg Mava Conran, her documentary that she aired on thir- Wednesday morning, I believe, was really amazing. Uh, families and lions who had you know somebody had a house up on higher ground and didn't know the people below, and and she 
these people moved into her house. She had never met them before. And she gave them a bed and they made meals together and got to know each other. But um, just that one gesture, that's just one single gesture uh, of neighborliness in, in its really at its foundation. Um but it, we could all learn so much. I mean, uh, I love the also that when the sirens rang, people were going out and calling and making sure or bringing attention to the first responders of a neighbor down the street or somebody that they hadn't heard from or they hadn't seen any activity of that. So all those things are, are so amazing. Uh, you talk about best practices, and that is a wonderful segue to introduce my uh, other guests here, which are which are Tom and Marge. Hogaboom. And uh, it's wonderful to have you here. You all have uh, spent the last 10 years uh, volunteering with World Renewed Disaster Response Services. It's out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. You um, have rebuilt uh, structures in Pensacola, Florida, following Hurricane Ivan. You've assessed unmet needs in, in uh, New Orleans, following Katrina. So welcome to you. Uh, thanks so much for the work you've done. And uh, talk about your experience here working with those trying to recover from the Boulder flood of the Colorado flood of 2013. Thanks, Liz. Yes, uh, we got involved fairly early on. Um, our daughter and her husband live here. She's uh, a student at, at Colorado University right now. And so um, our leader asked us, since we have a, an interest in the community anyway, to come out and, and help out. So we've been involved with a long-term recovery group basically since November. I was just say, did, was it after the, was it during the flood that you were asked to come no, out or in the months afterward? Yeah. Right. How, how do you think that the uh, flood situation here even came to the attention of, of your group in Michigan? Well, we, we are organized with uh, regional managers, basically couples that cover the entire United States. And so whenever there's a disaster in one of their regions, they get in touch with local folks. And then we as volunteers uh, are, are part of this. We're actually um, in communication with these regional managers on a, at least a monthly basis, more often if necessary. And so we were asked to come out and, and help get this uh, community ready for disaster assistance back in November. Yes, and, and as Stephanie was saying, there's, there's a lot of individual communities here that make up Boulder County. So there was some uh, extra work involved just to get people together to work on a regional basis, which was required, as Gary mentioned a while ago, uh, to have a more effective uh, response here and be able to get the donations required and things and get organized. So part of the services that World Renew offers to communities, especially those that haven't gone through a major disaster before, is to help them get organized, get ready for what the long term is going to be. There's different stages in disaster, obviously, and, and the quick response happens first. And, and we had some teams out here. I know in Lyons, uh, uh, our quick response groups that were helping muck out or with chainsaws, clearing trees and, you know, doing things um, right after the disaster. But then as time goes forward and those um, the emergency phase gets over with, there's preparation for the long term. And I think that's always a big revelation to communities that haven't had these larger disasters before that that's not, that's not a six-month job. It's going to be maybe six years. I mean, it, it's a long time to put a community back together when it's had 
major disasters such as you've had here. And again, it reminds me of of the stages of grief in in uh, or the experience one has suffering um, the death of a loved one. You know, you the person maybe has a period of illness, then then they pass away. Then there's the talking to everybody. There's everyone coming to remember the person, celebrate their life. There's a a service of some kind, but then there's then everybody goes away and goes back to their life. But the person who suffered the loss feels that loss acutely every single day going forward. And, and it, it just, your, your discussion about sort of, you have the emergency phase, but then you have this reality of the, the, the time and the distance and the effort to, to, to really have full recovery is not something that there are the same resources around as, as initially. So it's, it's a great point. Um, coming up now on uh, 855, you are listening to the Connections Program on KGNU Boulder, Denver. If you've just joined us, we're talking about the flood. We're continuing our commemoration this week of last year's historic flood along the Front Range. Uh, we're talking a little bit today, focusing more on the logistics of recovery, the resources that came together to create the long-term rec- uh, flood recovery group. And uh, if you have a story, a comment, or a question, or you need some uh, additional, perhaps, information about resources that continue to be available to flood victims, give us a call, 303-442-4242. I'm looking at this um, uh, Flood Recovery Colorado Spirit. It was put up by the Weld County Flood Recovery Outreach Team, and Gary, you kindly provided it. Um, It really talks about the anniversary, you know, that that there are some very unique... um, feelings, uh, experiences that people go through at an anniversary stage. And I also sort of, there's this really um, interesting graph which goes through sort of this, uh, the the real emotional swings that occur um, in this. You have uh, the disaster, the impact, and then emotional highs sort of go up as people come together, feel that wonderful community spirit, jump in there, get the energy you know we have you know common energy and and that sense of a common purpose feeling heroic whatever it is then there's this honeymoon uh phase where the community comes together to respond and then wow boom there's a huge drop off of the emotional highs into some pretty um uh, significant emotional lows and disillusionment. Gary, talk about that perspective from the management point of view, because we can understand that individuals impacted, of course, are going to have these you know wild emotional swings as they try to manage life, live life in in the throes of a disaster. From the the perspective of the um, those that are charged with organizing uh, recovery, providing assistance, getting the resources to provide that assistance. Do you have? Did, do you guys go through these similar emotional highs and lows? And and it's hard because you are there to provide strength, assistance, and resources to others. So talk about that from your perspective, Gary. Well, yeah, I, I think we do. Uh, folks that are involved in the recovery definitely I mirror this this graph that you have here about the stages of recovery. I know for myself. Um, am, am I in, I'm, am I in fully disillusionment? Um, not maybe completely, but I, I maybe there's a lot of definitely frustration. Um, there's a lot of frustration of not being able to fix issues, not being able to provide clear guidance to community members about their path to recovery or when we'll have new flood maps that will help them understand when, where or when they can rebuild uh, their home or their their access. 
there's frustration with the the pace of federal funds coming into the county. We're just starting to see the community development block grant disaster recovery funds just now just now come on on the first round just come uh, available. Uh, there's this frustration at the complexity of the the, the process. Uh, how we constantly have to get interpretations from the state about what really is meant by certain language and what's available. This is legal. This is legal-based stuff mostly, right? Yeah, and a lot of it's based on prior disasters and the fraud that the experience, the government has experienced. And so they've, you know, really clamped down on on what's, uh, you know, what certain processes are available, what services and funds are available, and how you report them and document it. So you know, on one hand, the the Four Mile Canyon fire was much simpler because it was just the county resources and people's individual insurance. We didn't have FEMA. Well, the magnitude of this event required that we needed outside assistance. The county's looking at two hundred and seventeen million dollars for the recovery. Total. They've Total. spent forty one to date. We spent yeah. over forty million dollars to date, and we've received about a million and a half in terms of reimbursement so far. So that's another process that just is, has a big lag time, and so yeah, so it I it, it it's also very tiring. This is a, a long. Uh, long-term process it's a marathon we use the cliche it's not a sprint it's a marathon and there is a you know a sense of a lot of accomplishment early on after the disaster you get a lot done you get a lot of people back in their homes but then there's this longer term process of uh, the slog of really trying to cut through some new regulatory frameworks we have to adopt and 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 as and as stephanie said every case every individual case is so unique that it have to take the time to really analyze and figure out what's the best way to help them recover. So. Uh, we are coming up on 9 o'clock. I have to pause now and tell listeners that you are listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM and 1390 AM with translator K229AC in Nederland, Colorado at 93.7 megahertz. Um, I do want to announce a couple of things here r- relative to the flood and, and this week's observation of um, the one-year anniversary. There is an oral history program. Maria Rogers is putting together an oral history uh, project on this, collecting the stories and reflections, reminiscences of people involved in the flood, people affected by the flood. And uh, she is going to be collecting stories this Sunday at the Museum of Boulder, 2205 Broadway, from noon to 7 p.m. That's Sunday, September 14th. And uh, you can also uh, make an appointment to do that. You can uh, call the following number, Susan Becker at 303-441-1981. That's 303-441-1981 if you want to make an appointment to share your story with Maria Rogers, who's putting together an oral history of the flood. Also, there is going to be a uh, book release uh, project. This is a on uh, tomorrow, September 13th, uh, The Road Home, the 2013 flood, Pinewood Springs rises above the water. This is a 124-page uh, publication. It was compiled and designed by Melody Brinkley, Kathleen Kundal, and Elizabeth Noble of the Pinewood Springs uh, Flood Book Committee. It uh, invites the reader on a journey through the eyes of this community as they responded to the flood of 2013. And uh, all the proceeds of this book book sale uh, will go to benefit the new fire station and community project in Pinewood Springs. Uh, So if you want more information about that, you can uh, contact Elizabeth Noble at the road home tops, the road home tops at gmail.com. 
Uh, it's interesting. The community of Pinewood Springs realized that while they do not have the resources to rebuild their old fire station and uh, emergency response building there, they they really have to do it. I mean, it was slightly damaged in the flood, but the magnitude of that event, the needs that were communicated and, and organizing responses to those needs uh, was just too much and really drove home the fact that current facilities were inadequate. Gary, you're nodding your head. Like, this is a story that you hear a lot. Is this the case with many of the mountain communities that that the the flood really drove home the need for uh, the urgent need for upgrades and and sort of struggling to find the resources to do that even though it's really part of intelligent future preparedness yeah and actually this started after the fire yeah. um, after the fire it was a, a big a wake up that uh, communities need to be more self-sufficient they need to be more resilient and they formed the uh, intermountain alliance uh, which is uh, representatives from all the different mountain towns and communities and, and Lyons is included in that in Jamestown. And they started doing preparedness and planning activities. They started a, a ham radio network. Uh, they started having these uh, supply cakes where they could have uh, generators, uh, chainsaws, et cetera, available. Uh, so we know that that had a huge impact on saving lives making those communities more resilient during this flood. And and there's a, a lot of lessons they are continuing to be able to be shared to f- folks down in the flatlands as well, who, who my sense, have a, a different sense of self-resilience because they're used to the fire department showing up within a few minutes to their home. And in this situation, they couldn't do that. So the mountains, we're used to being uh, res- you know self-sufficient for at least three or four days, cut off from other right. services. So there's a, there's a lot to be learned in this whole process and uh, a lot of neighborhoods came together and have built better stronger communication systems you know whether or not there's a internet or electricity to help them uh, help each other that reminds me stephanie you were talking about the um the distance seems to have really contracted between communities you know people that you know thinking well that's longmont that's further away this this whole experience the long term recovery flood group has really recognized the um that that when something like the flood of 2013 happens or, or the fire that really the community comes together but talk a little bit about the communities in the plains they have not been tested they have not had to to deal with something like this so if we are going to learn some long-term lessons from the flood of 2013 and and the recovery effort and and that the resilience that's been built in our community about that. What do you see as uh, perhaps being some uh, very preemptive and preliminary uh, things that folks in Louisville, Lafayette, Erie, uh, even further out uh, can do? To, to get ready for, to be to be a community to be able to respond to the needs of of your neighbors. Well, we're lucky in Boulder County to have a great Office of Emergency Management, and they've been doing a lot to. Um, in terms of preparedness and taking the lessons learned that Gary's referring to in these mountain communities with the fires and, and other such things that um, that can be applied right in the cities as well. Um, I think that um, I think some of those same best practices can easily be applied when it comes to either being cut off from services, um, you know, being able to have some basic things like water and batteries and communication you know, ring true for the cities as well. And those kinds of community meetings are starting to happen to be able to prepare neighborhoods, Um, you know, make sure people know their neighbors, that they've got, you know, if it's an HOA, that they know each other, that they have phone numbers, that they are comfortable knocking on each other's doors. Just some really simple things that neighbors can do for each other. Um, 
Tom and, and Marge, you've been, or as I noted in introducing you, you've been around the country in a lot of other disasters. I, I'd like you to c- compare your experience with Katrina because, again, if it's even comparable, it was an enormous city. Uh, we all know what, what the failures were there. But um, talk, if you will, about, and, you know, sort of the... The, the diversity uh, that of New Orleans was was such a big issue. People in poor communities not really uh, receiving the same services as quickly, the same attention. So you you came here. You're sort of familiar with with Colorado. You noted your daughter's a student here. But uh, what were some of the uh, the the big observations you made about this community and how they came together, and also about where you think we are in this recovery uh, process in from your experience? Oh, that's a difficult question, Liz, um, because I, as I've talked to Stephanie and Gary, I've noted that every disaster is unique, and yet they go through the same sorts of phases. Uh, we've already talked about that, the emergency service, and um, eventually winding up with the long-term unmet needs. Um, we've been back down along the Gulf Coast several times since Katrina, um, two, three, four years after the fact. And we find areas there that have not begun to rebuild at this point. Uh, We did a long-term needs assessment uh, just east of New Orleans, just east of the Ninth Ward, which everybody knows about, um, 18 months after the fact, and found folks there that had not been contacted yet. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And so here... It's a very different thing. We did a, an unmet needs assessment here with a team in February. Of 2014. Of 2014. Yeah. And so we were able to uh, discover many of those folks who were not going to be able to recover without additional assistance from the community. Um, what the com- was the status of the unmet needs in February? Uh, moderate? Uh, heavy? How would you characterize I that? I would say at that point... Um, Moderate. Okay. Okay. There, there were, we, we personally interviewed personally with our team uh, over 550 uh, families. Wow. They, they came into our walk-in centers uh, to have us assess their unmet needs. Right. And those survey, that survey data was put in a computerized database and was left here with the long-term flood recovery group. That's their information, and that's what their caseworkers have now been using to follow up with people. And they also had a hotline number that they had other cases that they knew about of people that didn't come into our walk-in centers when we did this. But, uh, yeah, there was almost 600 families that we built case files on that were ready to be worked on. And we prioritized them all so they could hit the high-priority ones first. What would and what would uh, constitute a high-priority case file of many, that set that you had? Many times it was more in the area of personal, personal need as far as um, people being emotionally incapable so of for moving forward. Mental health services. Mental health types of things. Uh, Depression. We, Depression, yes, and people that had medical issues that made them unable to get out to get the help that other people were able to, uh, those would make priorities go up a little bit. Uh, the seriousness of, of their family situation, it could be a single mother, uh, very low income with children, and, you know, that didn't Move have... Move that file to the top. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, the provision of mental health services, and um, I I know, Stephanie, that Mental Health Partners uh, is one of the 
uh, partners in the long-term flood recovery group. And I also, I'm a volunteer there as well. And I know that they set up uh, office hours uh, in the weeks and months after the flood for people literally to just stop by and have a place to have a person to listen and, um, and a, you know, a professional uh, environment to, to receive and, and hopefully provide some assistance for the, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the fear, all the, you know, that, that those feelings are also not going to be resolved in three months or six months or a year or two. So, so that, you know, you have the roads and the creek beds and all these things that aren't going to be resolved and finalized for a long time, but you have people's mental health. Um, that's, that's a really tall order. So, so where would you think that then, so you felt like Boulder, uh, County, the front range that you, that the needs assessment, uh, certainly as compared to Katrina was, it sounds like it was a little bit better, but again, we had a smaller sample of people to, to look at, right? Yes, that's correct. Stephanie, the uh, unmet needs of, of our citizens, I'm sure weighs heavily on you as the manager of the long-term flood recovery group. Um, how, uh, how important is the FEMA money? Uh, what other sources of donations of revenue are you um, going after and how many how many many more years do you expect that the long-term flood recovery group will be um, assisting people that's a really good question it goes to the timeline that is nearly impossible to um, you know give to people um, we'll be here um, as long as we're needed really there'll be services for people to help them recover as long as it takes um, the, the kinds of assistance that we are finding right now in the recovery is um, a lot of construction, and we rely heavily on volunteers to help with those kind of, kinds of efforts. We have so many groups that are in um, either from out of state or, uh, or local organizations that have local chapters that get involved. Um, I'd mentioned the Red Cross and Salvation Army, but there are also groups like the Mennonite Disaster Services, um, Habitat for Humanity, um, UMCOR, which is the United Methodist um, Committee on Relief that, that, and Lutheran Disaster Response that come, Lots come of here. Lots organizations. Yeah, here. they come here um, with teams of people. And um, anytime that we can put volunteers, um, you know, on on an assignment, uh, on a case to help somebody recover, um, is, uh, those Money saved. exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, um, that's definitely needed. Um, we have these groups, but in addition to that, we're also, um, you know, interested in recruiting more, more volunteers. If, you know, companies and, and corporations or, um, organizations here locally, um, have people that want to put together a team, we definitely have projects that we can match them with. So the use of volunteers uh, is an interesting uh, issue, and it actually, um, in a larger uh, compilation uh, that was put together by ISET International um, uh, with Global, Global Disaster Preparedness Center, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, it's a, a, whole, a study of resilience, uh, the floods and boulders, the, the title of this. And one of the issues, it was both a positive and a negative, but... Uh, there were a lot of concerns, a lot of um, initial folks, uh, mountain communities, people here uh, in town and along the Front Range that wanted to get involved right away, called the city of Boulder to volunteer and were hoping to have immediately be charged with some project or sent on some assignment. And there was um, difficulty.
difficulty doing that. There are legal issues, liability issues, management issues. Uh, Gary, talk about the the use, and yet groups form together. If the city of Boulder uh, didn't yet have a structure to to uh, have volunteers and and deploy them uh, where most needed, uh, groups came together. The Occupy. Uh, sort of flat um, organ flat hierarchy of, of organ organizing was used uh, and many of these groups uh, the mudslingers is one at least named group that came together so talk about those challenges Gary um, you know using volunteers in the most effective way possible but managing it in a way so that you don't have to do more work or, or fix things later on so talk about that if you will well, I, I can't speak on behalf of the city of Boulder, but for the Boulder County, uh, it was clear that this, this, the, the scope of this disaster was so overwhelming that the government couldn't do this alone. So it was imperative that, that everyone came together and, and pitched in. And there were some of these emergent groups, as you reference, uh, the mudslingers, uh, Boulder Flood Relief, as well as this, you know, kind of ad hoc neighborhood groups that came in and started doing uh, various. Um, recovery activities, whether well, it was mucking out, moving debris, et cetera. And, you know, that that was a, a beautiful thing to see in our community, that there was that natural uh, kind of inclination to come and help each other. And it, it proved to be vital, vital in our recovery. Again, government couldn't do everything, couldn't be everywhere all the time. And, uh, you know, in terms of how it's organized in the future, I think that's part of what we're kind of reflecting on now. How can we coordinate that a little better so we don't get in each other's way? We are actually uh, building on each other's work because uh, we do have some formal structures and organizations, but uh, they were quickly overwhelmed in, in this disaster. And I, I guess the other point I, I just want to just hammer home here, even though you know we are in this this one-year anniversary where it's we're, we're running into some of the frustrating bureaucratic pieces of you know any kind of disaster. Uh, I just want to make sure that people know that the county is fully in engaged and and for the long haul. My position is a three-year position. The commissioners are f- fully committed to uh, working on the recovery for the long term. That we we are going to work, and as my motto is, recovery is one one household at a time. And we will take the time. And I want to urge people to come down to our flood recovery center at thirteen oh one Spruce and Boulder to come in and talk to us about what happened in their in their property. And it's not too late, and we know things change over time, and we can help uh, identify resources, identify a path for recovery. So I want to give people hope that we are, we are going to get through this. It's going to take time, but this whole community does come together. We have a history of coming together. This is not just new in our disaster. This is something that it's a value in our community. 303-442-4242 is the phone number. If you'd like to call, share a story, ask a question. We have uh, Stephanie Walton here. She's the manager of the Long-Term Flood Recovery Group. Gary Sansifan, he is uh, overseeing flood recovery uh, in the county. And we have Tom and Marge Hogaboom, who are with the World Renew Disaster Response Services. And they came here from Michigan to assist and assess the, uh, the flood recovery, assess the unmet needs of the flood recovery. Um, I do want to um, ask a little bit, uh, Gary, more on the structural infrastructure. And 
Um, a lot of uh, people in unincorporated Boulder County and the East County, uh, their property wasn't really flooded, but because of the um, overwhelm of all the water and all the sewage drains and storm drains, a lot of people had sewage backup um, in their houses. And, and there's a whole system, uh, sewage system issue that really uh, needs to be looked at for the future. It's really expensive. Boulder already has a you know underground sewage system in place, but clearly there were um, there were property losses and and issues because of this. So and that really isn't on the table quite yet. So when you look at infrastructure, major future changes, what do you see as the priorities, and when is the the county or the city going to have to really turn its attention to that? So in terms of unincorporated Boulder County, uh, we experienced over 150 roads uh, that were damaged, 150 miles of roads were damaged, uh, 30 miles were completely destroyed. So we've spent uh, you know, the first six months of the recovery rebuilding those 30 miles of roads. We had to do a temporary road, and uh, it's a two-lane, what we call a winter road, so people can get back home and uh, continue to live there and work. Uh, that cost about $11 million just to do that. Uh, the next phase is the permanent road reconstruction. And so we're just starting to have meetings in neighborhoods about what people uh, feel like should be improvements should be made, what kind of changes to the road, how should it be in relation to the creek. That's another major uh, planning process that's going on right, right. now. To, to better understand how we should uh, build better and stronger uh, infrastructure. We also lost uh, 36 bridges were severely damaged. Um, Ten of those uh, were completely destroyed. Four have been rebuilt. One is under construction and five are in the design phase. So, yeah, imagine uh, a road and maintenance crew that has usually a $5 million annual budget for road maintenance work. All of a sudden now, we've what we've spent twenty two million since the the the, uh, the flood, and we're projected to spend over a hundred million dollars in that. So for for the county, it's roads, roads yeah. and bridges are the you know the artery. The, the, the it's septic and and sewage systems is more um, urban, more municipal driven process, and so. I know the city of Boulder is looking at their their systems and that, but it, right now we're still really trying to get critical infrastructure back online so people can have somewhat normal, uh, you know, activity, normal lives. Uh, the other piece of that is the private access. A lot of the private bridges and culverts that were washed out over probably a hundred throughout the county, and coming up with policies and better floodplain mapping to help people understand what you know will stand the next flood. Oh, we have a caller. I want to go to Valerie. She's on the phone. Hi, Valerie. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, I have um, a, a, it's a bit of a complicated question. Um, and um, I'm confused because I've got the radio on, so I'm having a trouble. I need to turn my radio off. Okay. Um, because I can't hear. Okay. Um one of the things, I am flood displaced still. I'm um, disabled. And uh, I, was, I have actually two questions. One is, how many um, statistically uh, people are still flood displaced? Because what I've run into is that uh, starting two weeks after the flood, Channel 9 was saying that all the persons who had been flood displaced had found permanent housing. I'm like, <laughs> this is bizarre because I'm in a FEMA uh, temporary hotel. Um, 
So I'd, I'd like to know what the actual statistics are for persons who are still flood displaced, because last week I ran into two people who still, like myself, um, do not have permanent housing. The second question is um, related to the program that was on before this, um, which was about um, human trafficking. And what... That's sort of... Well, I, I appreciate your question about uh, flood displacement, Valerie, but as, if you have a comment about the previous question, you should call the comment line about that? No, no, no. Okay. I'm trying to relate them. Oh, okay. In that <clears throat> the point was made of how predators move in and how they operate. And what I would like to raise as a question is, um, because I've had this turn up as an issue, I've had a Red Cross volunteer say that this is this happened with Sandy, and I've noticed it happening, that there most of the people who come in to volunteer uh, come in with wonderful, wonderful uh, intentionality. But I've run across the people who also come in to these disasters and look for people um, like myself who are vulnerable, isolated, alone, and I can't, I don't know, if they, there don't seem to be any mechanisms for uh, reporting it. Um, or Thanks for a lot. letting That's people a, know that, that there are people in these structures that have been set up who, you know, aren't listening to the actual needs of the people who are flood displaced, who are have medical issues, who are uh, have nowhere uh, permanent to live, who don't have a, a, a way to uh, look for housing, et cetera, et cetera. And okay. so it, it's... Um, I just noticed that there are unmet needs, but there's also, it's, it seems like people who aren't listening, they don't really listen when one says what your needs are. And, and, and I've worked a lot with disabled people, and it's like the first thing you say is, what do you need? And then you listen. And I feel I haven't been listened to, and I've talked to other people. I ran into a woman who's living in her van, and she's disabled still. And she's been living in her van for a year, and I don't think she's showing up on any of the statistics. Thanks so much, Valerie. Really appreciate that. I'm going to ask Stephanie Walton to uh, respond. Thanks for the call. Go ahead, Stephanie. So Valerie's situation, I don't think, is um, unlike many that we're hearing. Um, and I would encourage Valerie and um, people like Valerie and her, um, the person that she's come across living in the van. I mean, we are, we're still having an average of six people or families walking in our office. Um, New each, people every each day, week. each week. Okay. Yeah. And uh, with stories. And, and that's really what the long-term flood recovery group is there for. It's a case management team to sit and listen and help assess and help build a plan for um, defining their new normal and getting them started. Um, I would say, um, I don't have the exact number to Valerie's question on the number of people displaced, but it's nearly 100 people still Continued, or families yeah. that are still displaced. Um, some of those are access issues. Um, uh, you know, there are a variety of reasons why that's the case. Um, but people who are needing assistance should contact the long-term flood recovery group. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. You can call our phone number, which is 303 442 
2187 and we can schedule an intake with one of our case managers to talk more about the kinds of things that we can help with help people with um in terms of Valerie's comment about the kinds of scams and fraud that that come online after a disaster like this, um, you know that that unfortunately does happen, and um, we don't necessarily have a lot of details on those. But I would encourage anybody who is suspect, um, if uh, you know, they can certainly call our office and talk to a case manager to find out you know, programs and opportunities that are legitimate programs. Um, but if they are suspicious and want to report anything, you would contact the district attorney's office, their consumer protection d- agency. Thanks so much for that, Stephanie. Uh, to what extent has that type of uh, predatory, fraudulent uh, behavior been uh, something that's come to any of your attention, Gary? I hear it now and then, but I have not heard it in a doesn't seem to be base. systemic, no. right? No. Right. We've seen it in almost every disaster. Uh, The day after Katrina, people were posing as FEMA agents and asking people for their uh, bank information and their Social Security numbers so they could have monies deposited directly directly into their bank account. Uh, People take advantage of vulnerable folks, and it doesn't matter what the disaster is. Well, that's the nice thing, I think, with the long-term flood recovery group is we can get you connected with a case manager who is asking for that information, but for use to help them recover and to find programs and resources to get them back on their feet. So there was no doubt when uh, you folks were looking at how to keep the response going, how to continue to provide resources to people that some umbrella organizations such as the long-term flood recovery group was essential instead of sort of setting up satellite offices geographically that, that there really needed to be one stop uh, resource for everything. Yes. And I think every disaster is different and every community is different. So, you know, like I said, there are those guidelines and best practices, and then each community defines it for themselves. I know in Larimer County and Weld County, they also have long-term recovery groups as well. Um, and, you know, they're set up and a little bit differently and, and their communities are, are also a little different. Um, there are just, uh, we have just a couple minutes left, and I want to try to get this last caller on the phone. But um, just to give uh, information out to listeners, Stephanie, uh, the phone number for the long term flood recovery group you just gave out is 303 442 2187. Gary, your office is located at 1301 Spruce Street. Uh, do you have a phone number or a website to give out? Yeah, uh, the website is bouldercountyflood.org, and the phone number for the flood recovery center is 303 303- Four four one one seven zero five. And our hours, we have walk-in hours, no appointment necessary uh, every day of the week, uh, 10 to 4. And you guys are in Michigan, but do give out the, if people are interested in joining the group and uh, being available to help other communities in disasters, uh, how can they find out about the World Renewed Disaster Response Service? Well, the easiest way, as you can see, Liz, we're wearing green shirts today. And so if anybody wants to find out more about our organization, they can go to greenshirts.org, greenshirts.org. and they'll be referred to all of the various uh, uh, services that we offer. I want to thank all of you for uh, the commitment and dedication that you uh, have made to this and to all of your neighbors in the community. A um, couple of things that uh, – 
that are on this wonderful sheet that Weld County put up. And uh, Gary, I wonder if you can confirm that it's 10 ways to improve resilience is really applies to people and to organizations as well. So um, avoid seeing crises as insurmountable problems, move toward your goals, accept change as part of living, take decisive action, keep things in perspective. Uh, do you find yourself sort of going back to these things yourself as, as a manager of all these individuals um, trying to provide aid and, and be a resource to people still in, in uh, transition and displacement? Uh, definitely. I mean, self-care is critical not only for the survivors of a, of a disaster, but also the folks who are working on right. providing services. And I, I kind of learned that the hard way after the fire. Uh, I definitely uh, initially didn't take care of myself, uh, but I uh, hit a wall and I had to had to reassess my, the level of time and energy I could put into this and, and take care of myself if I was going to be help to anyone else. And I guess the other thing I would say is... Uh, People react differently to the disaster. There's no timeline as when you're going to feel uh, these these types of uh, issues, whether it's anger, sadness, uh, you know, feeling defeated or hopelessness. That that can come in in the first few days and come in months. It can come in a year later. Right. We've seen that throughout the disaster cycle. Uh, so what, what I would urge is, is there's a lot of services, a lot of uh, available resources for folks. There's a mental health voucher program. There's... Uh, mental health services, the long-term flood recovery groups doing a fantastic job of being a connecting place to help you navigate all these resources. So uh, I know one of the biggest challenges sometimes is just getting off the, the couch and get, and making the phone call or coming in Going in person. down to the office, right. right. But that is uh, the first step in staying in contact with people. And, and what we're learning is everything is this is an evolving um, uh, recovery things change all the time. We get new information, new programs come online. So there's there, that's why we need you to stay in contact with us and help make that effort so we can help you as well. And as Gary pointed out, it is not too late to go down to the office at 1301 Spruce Street or to call 303-441-1705 or again the Long Term Flood Recovery Group. You can get in touch with them at 303-442-2187. We are out of time. Stephanie, really quick. I just wanted to share our website as well. If okay. people can't get down to the office and have access to the internet, they can fill out a form and we can contact them. At And that's at bocofloodrecovery.org. So that's B-O-C-O floodrecovery.org. Thanks so much to all of you. Tom and Marge, a pleasure to meet you. Gary, thanks so much for coming in. And Stephanie Walton, great to see you. Thanks a lot. Uh, coming up next, we have Meredith in studio. So stay tuned next for the Morning Sound Alternative. For KGNU, I'm Liz Lane.